Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Brownstein's senior policy directors representing the four corners of congressional leadership come together for a discussion on the upcoming midterms. Nadim Elshami, Carmen Sita Wonder, Brian McGuire, and the Brownstein policy team's newest member, Will Dunham, will give their predictions for the results of the 2022 elections and dive into how these changes might affect the legislative priorities of the next Congress. Brownstein's strategic advisor and former Alaska Senator Mark Begich moderates the conversation. Thank you for being here today for our midterm panel. Today we have some great folks from the Brownstein team. First, I'd like to introduce Carmen Cita Wonder. Uh, she served as staff director for the Senate Subcommittee on Housing, Transportation, and Community Development and the principal advisor to Senator Schumer on Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. Next to her is uh, our new member, Will Dunham, the newest member of the Brownstein team. He has served seven years as Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's top policy director and liaison to House committees. Next to Will, we have Nadim El-Sami, served 25 years in Congress. Uh, he began his career in the Senate and then continued to move up and ended up as chief of staff to the House Democratic leader, Nancy Pelosi. Last, Brian McGuire. He served as a Senate-confirmed position in the Department of Treasury as Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs and also served as a longtime aide and chief of staff to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. I'm Mark Baggage. I'm a former U.S. Senator from Alaska, former mayor, former assembly member in whatever job they tell me I should do. I do. And they put me as moderator because as a senator, they don't want me to answer questions because you could be here for an hour with just that answer. So um, we're very happy to have you here. And I'm going to really just kind of start off in a broad sweep and I'll probably go right here to Brian and just start with the, the broader question is, where are we? And I'll just say this with one caveat. In politics, in my world, for years, it was always uh, every day is like a lifetime in politics. And so we're two weeks out from an election. So multiple lifetimes, multiple polls will be engaged in kind of what do you see and where do you see us currently? And I'll kind of jump around down through the group here. And then I have some broader questions. Brian? Sure. Um, So where we are. I think when at least the consultants that I spend most of my time talking with think about elections, they focus primarily on the period after Labor Day, the period that we're in. And if you look at the poll trajectories, you see that there's generally a pretty clear um, line post-Labor Day and that that line is um, uh, favoring Republicans at the moment. There's also a moment at the end of that short post-Labor Day period where um, most people who've been around campaigns for a while expect some kind of a uh, a snap at the end. And I think the way I'm looking at it is that snap can be one or two percentage points. It can be three or five percentage points. If it's the former, um, I think, you know, Republicans will have a pretty good day in the Senate and the House. If it's a um, three to five percent snap, it'll be even better. So I think at the moment, um, just given those trajectories, given the kind of matrix of issues that the voters are clearly and consistently telling us they care most about, I think I'm comfortable. I think it's reasonable to expect 
Republicans would would take over not just the House, but um, with 51 votes in the Senate. Given current trajectories, obviously those trends can change given other factors, but um, I certainly think it's reasonable to expect that at this point. Nadim, um, the, kind of the, the the talk is about um, the House, uh, the Democrats losing the House. Brian just gave his opinion that the Senate is going to be Republican, potentially. Uh, what, what's your thoughts in, in assuming that the House is Republican-controlled? What will your former boss, how, how will they operate? I'm looking at measurable metrics, right? Things that, not, not polls, not, you know, stories. Um, and I'm looking at three metrics, right? The, the first is uh, post-Dobbs decision registration, and uh, we saw a huge surge, especially for women voters in states that are important states for, for Democrats. I think that's one, and that's measurable. Two, we've had two races, one in Alaska, one in New York, where Democrats won. And, and frankly, uh, prior to the polls, um, the polls said that they, uh, they were down. So they won both of those races. And then uh, the third, and I think most importantly, what we have now is early voting. And early voting is pretty high, and that usually bodes well for Democrats. What is that all going to mean at the end of the day? I think we, if we have a turnout uh, similar to 2018, which was over 50%, uh, and it actually surpasses 2018, um, I think um, Democrats uh, could uh, have a good night. Um, but again, this is we are 10 days or 13, you know, or 11 days out. Uh, frankly, it's it's um, anything could change. But um, but I'm looking at, at these direct metrics. I'm watching these early voting numbers, and they are voting pretty well for uh, for Democrats. Right. Well, you're the new member to the Brownstein team, and so you're fresh off the hill, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, uh, give us your thoughts on the, especially on the House side, if. If all trends go where people think, uh, at least the pundits think, that the Republicans control the House, how close is it going to be? Thanks, Senator. Uh, and, and thanks to all of you for being here bright and early in the morning. And it's only the diehards who come to a breakfast panel. Uh, anybody can come to an 11 a.m. panel. Uh, so thanks for being here with us. Uh, I, I, think, I think Brian and Nadim uh, laid it out pretty well. I'm going to give a little context um, for the, the Democrat and the Republican view uh, in the House in particular. Um, if Republicans pick up 18 seats in the House, that will be the biggest majority uh, well, that, that will be the same as the majority in 1994. Uh, if, ha- if House Republicans pick up 30 seats, that gets them to 2010. 35 seats will be the largest House majority for Republicans in 100 years. That's just a little context. You know, people are talking about 60, 70 seats. I, I, think, uh, I think that's well outside the realm of possibility. So just to give you a little context, um, really, really staying within the historical band is somewhere between... 18 and 35. Um, a little more historical context, the battleground where, where the majority will be won or lost. Um, in 2000, 124 seats were traditional swing seats, so five points either way. Uh, in 2010, 99 swing seats. In 2020, 
30 swing seats. And so the battlefield that the two parties are fighting over is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And so um, after after this year's redistricting, it's really 200 seats for one side, 200 seats for the other, and about 30, 35 seats that everybody's fighting over. Obviously, the battleground's a little bigger than that uh, because it's a, a midterm year, um, and so the party in power uh, traditionally has to defend more seats um, when they hold the White House, and that's, of course, the case uh, this year. So a little context uh, for the, the horse race that, that Brian and uh, Nadim uh, laid out so well. Um, between 18 and 35 seats, I think, is, is really the range that could potentially flip, uh, and that has a lot to do with redistricting. Um, and, 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 you know, we can talk about some particular races later if you want, Senator, but I'll, I'll leave it there for the context. That'd be great. Car- Carmesita, you, you work for Senator Schumer. You know, he doesn't give up on anything. Even when he thinks he's going to lose, he tries to win again. Uh, w- what do you think is going to happen in the Senate from your perspective? So, I mean, I think, I mean, I think the truth is that no one really knows what's going to happen at all. Um, but I do think that, you know, as Brian talked about this kind of post-Labor Day period, um, what I think is happening on the Democratic side is that the political laws of gravity are realigning. And I think that when I say that, I mean that Democrats have always understood that Mark Kelly wasn't going to win by double digits in Arizona. They've always understood that Pennsylvania was going to be a really close race. I think that um, Georgia was going to be a fight to the death and you know, and Nevada was going to be very difficult. And so, you know, while there are some Democrats who probably have, um, whose moods are low, because that's kind of what we do, I do think that there are a lot of other Democrats, and I would put myself in that camp, who believe that this is just a realigning and this is what it was going to always end up being. And so, um, you know, I think that you're right. Um, Senator Schumer never gives up. I think we saw that with the Inflation Reduction Act and CHIPS and all of the um, legislation that was passed um, this summer. Um, He will fight to the bitter end. And I think that, um, you know, on the Democratic side, and I think Senator Schumer believes that it will, um, that the Democrats will retain the House, I mean, retain the Senate. And I think that, you know, Look, I think that there's a lot of talk about crime. There's a lot of talk about inflation and the economy. But I also think that what you saw in Kansas with with um, women overwhelmingly showing up to um, to ensure that abortion was not banned in that state, I think that there are a number of young voters and uh, uh, voters of color who are not captured in this data. And so when you look at we we have never seen a midterm election post insurrection, post Roe America, and so I think there are just seismic shifts that are happening in this country that I just don't think that there are any polls or data that are able to capture today, and so I, I think that I think that the Senate will um, will remain Democratic. I think it'll either be fifty fifty or fifty one forty nine. I think there are some outlier races in Utah and in um, other parts of the country like North Carolina that could potentially, you know, give, give us that um, one, you know, one vote, one vote advantage. Thanks, Karnasine. Let me, I'm going to ask one question and whoever wants to jump in afterwards, I'm going to ask to Nadine because, you know, when you think about where we are right now, elections are going to be done, lame duck, 
There are a lot of people in this room trying to figure out what is going to happen in lame duck. And there's a unique piece of the equation. You have people retiring or will lose. You have this proxy system, which is very unique in a lame duck session. What are those top issues that people are going to have to be focused on? And then how does uh, Speaker Pelosi deal with this with some members who won't be there, but yet you got proxy, which is an interest in whoever else wants to jump in afterwards? Well, look, I mean, any, any lame duck is an opportunity to, to get some business done. And I think what they have before them, of course, is NDAA, which I believe they uh, will be able to get done. Uh, the question you is... Think they'll put stuff on the NDAA? Potentially, potentially, but I think it's up to, uh, you know, to, to the Republicans whether they agree or not. Um, the omnibus appropriation um, bill... Um, all four um, uh, leaders have to agree that they want to move forward and clear the decks. There's a, there's a big opportunity for it to be a moving train, um, frankly. And, and look, you have a lot of earmarks that are included in, um, in the House-passed uh, appropriations bills, but also some in the Senate. So, so I think it's, it's a good opportunity to see additional items added onto it. The big question that remains is, will this... Uh, lame duck deal with the debt limit? Or will the debt limit be pushed into uh, next Congress? Uh, I know there's been some uh, brief discussions between the Biden administration and and some in the Senate uh, about that, but I think that remains to be seen. But look, every lame duck is a major opportunity to get many items done. So, For, I guess, Will and Brian on the Republican side, what what, what do you think is going to What's the best leverage? Let's say they, the Republicans win the House, it's a split Senate. What do you do in a lame duck? Yeah, so, I mean, the House obviously is a majoritarian institution. And so uh, if Republicans take the majority in the House, um, I, I, I don't think they will be in any mood to cut a big sweeping deal um, on the cusp of taking the majority. Uh, so I think I think the bar is pretty high for House Republicans if they take the majority uh, to cut a deal realistically on on everything that Nadine walked through. Now I think NDAA, you know, there's a long tradition, a 60-year tradition of getting that done every year. I think NDAA gets done. Um, appropriations is 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 a big question mark to me. I think I think if again we're talking about a scenario where uh, Republicans take the House, um, I I think I think. They will do what most incoming majorities have done in the past, which is say, you know, maybe we should do a short-term CR, fund the government for a little while, and then we'll write the bill next year. Um, now, of course, there are a lot of there are a lot of headwinds. Uh, I, I think House Republicans will be um, possibly uh, possibly alone in that, depending. And I'll, I'll defer to Brian uh, to, to to talk about Senate Republicans. Um, Obviously, tax and health are big categories where there will be a lot of discussion as well uh, in, in that end game. So, you know, just to level set, I think for House Republicans, I think the bar will be pretty high to cut a deal if they're on the cusp of the majority. Brian, how, do, how does uh, McConnell deal with this? Well, I'm going to just step back and, and say that McConnell has been basically party leader through every permutation we can think of. And of the two likely scenarios after the election, either Republican-led House, Democrat-led Senate, and a Democrat-led White House, uh, 
or Republican unified control of Congress and a Democrat White House. We've seen examples of that between 2010-2014, where you had split Congress and a Democrat president, and then in 14 to 16, where you had uh, unified Republican control of the Senate and a um, Democrat-led White House. And in both of those scenarios, Leader McConnell basically operated under the principle that if the voters elect a different party to run Congress than they vote the White House, it doesn't mean that they want Congress to do nothing. It means that they don't want one party to do everything they possibly can on their own. So um, in 2010, 11, and 12, he worked with now President Biden on a couple of deals that he thought were significant. In one case, um, leveraged the debt ceiling to enact some significant domestic spending cuts. Um, The Budget Control Act also extended the Bush tax cuts in 2010 and at the end of 2000, very end of 2012, um, extended those Bush tax cuts and avoided the fiscal cliff. So that was a scenario in which the Republicans didn't even have the majority in the Senate, but the Republicans in the House uh, did. And Leader McConnell um, used that as an opportunity, given the economic situation at the time in the country, to leverage, I think, significant concessions from Democrats even without control of the Senate. It's a good illustration of how the Senate is different from the House. As, as Will said, the House is a majoritarian institution. But in those cases, Leader McConnell had significant leverage just because he had 10 votes that Republicans needed in order to effectuate any of those outcomes. So if you move now to the period of 2014 to 16, when Republicans controlled the Senate, 15 to 17, um, I think Leader McConnell was, you know, in a, a little bit of a different situation. Um, he's not a, a huge fan of um, putting bills on the floor that he doesn't think are going to go anywhere. He doesn't expect the president to sign. Um, and he's very focused, I would think, uh, on, on the um, sort of mega question of ensuring that the legislative filibuster sticks around, for instance, um, and that other institutional um, sort of factors continue to you know, reflect Republican principles. So he would also argue that the most significant thing he's done in his near 16 years of being party leader in the Senate was related to nominations, which is an area um, that the House has no say over um, whatsoever, um, namely uh, preventing the nomination of uh, Merrick Garland to go forward. So I think he's focused both institutionally, also nominations, um, but is very obviously adept at um, working through whatever permutation of government we end up with and will leverage you know, whatever that makeup is, even if it's a, a narrow majority. Um, I think that raises other significant challenges that would have to be worked through, but I'm you know, confident that he'll figure out ways to leverage it to the maximum extent possible. Go ahead, Nadine. Very quickly, having lived um, like Brian did through 2010 during the lame duck where uh, Vice President Biden at the time came to the caucus and, and sold the deal that he had reached with Leader McConnell. Um, I, I am not certain that um, a Democratic caucus this time around would be willing to accept a similar deal or, or, or feel like they're over a barrel if they have to, you know, having to act. Um, and I think in, in 2014 and 2015, there were some major pieces of legislation that were bipartisan uh, that were passed, for example, the um, tax extenders and, and, and others. But, but I think 
I think post-election, uh, we'll have to see what, um, you know, the, 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 what needs to get done. But uh, I, I don't believe that a take-it-or-leave-it type approach to House Democrats especially is going to uh, succeed this time around. And that could be, um, you know, their position going forward. I want to pick up on, let's, let's assume for a Senate, the Senate is uh, Republican-controlled, you're in a lame duck. I know you're sad already. I can see it. Well, okay. We'll 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 take your comment, put it over here. Uh, but we'll, about your framing of the question. Yeah, let me let me think about this. Uh, but but the assume your January comes, Republicans can control the Senate. And, and this is kind of the the question I love asking in groups. Do you think everyone's here till Christmas because Senator Schumer wants to get every single court nominee? Done as he possibly can. What happens? Everyone's looking at their calendars. I got a vacation. I got. Uh, what happens in that scenario? I mean, my gut tells me he's going to try to do everything he possibly can that requires only fifty plus one. I do think that will be out before Christmas, um, and maybe because again the Democrats are going to win. But um, <laughs> but I I I think I, you know I think that he will um, attempt to do. Um, things that are extremely important to him, like the SAFE Act or SAFE Plus. I think, you know, defense of marriage is still extremely important um, for them to try to get done. Um, you know, there are some, you know, there are some bills like the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, and I think FDA user fee reauthorization, there's still some unfinished business there. So there are a few things that I think he's going to try to get done. And I think, obviously, you know, you you hope that Republicans come to the table because there are things like defense spending that need to happen. But, you know, I don't know that the list is, like, so long. Um, I think there are a few key things that they would like to get done um, before we're out, and I do think that it'll happen before Christmas. Nadeem, I want to just follow up on one little comment, and that's the, the, the uniqueness of the proxy vote. How is that going to work I mean, I'm visualizing this. Lame duck occurs. Whoever's in control. There's Democrats and Republicans who retired or are not coming back, right? And then there's some that have lost who are very upset, and they've hidden in a cave somewhere because they're upset they lost. How does that work? And then, I guess, to Will, will they continue the proxy process in, in the future? There's a test for you. Nadine, what happens? Well, if you have vacation, you know. Um, so, <laughs> look, I, I, I think proxy voting has guaranteed that um, every vote is counted, that no member could escape right. um, their vote. Um, I know that my Republican <laughs> colleagues don't like it, um, but I think everyone has gone on the record. And um, look, you know, you're not going to have 150 Democrats proxy voting, and it's not going to be the case, right? I mean, so there's still going to be a handful of those <coughs> further out, maybe those who perhaps have family vacations for real, maybe those who are uh, not feeling well. Uh, there's going to have a handful who, you know, some will lose, and, and they don't want to be in town because they lost their offices. So but I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to help the process, knowing that you have 218 votes in your pocket, and I think that's important. Will, do you think that Republicans will have proxy voting and if they take the House? Yeah, 
and you know, first, first looking at this Congress, I think Democrats have used proxy voting uh, as a as a caucus management tool very adeptly. I, I, you know, in a narrow majority, um, proxy voting has has helped ensure full attendance. Uh, and and you know, sometimes members were voting well. Uh, and I've got to give Nadim a little bit of a hard time here. Uh, piloting a commercial aircraft that happened um members were proxy voting uh in committee from kayaks that happened on video actually and i don't um, know what, what in your point is what and, and, <laughs> and, uh, it makes these people in congress more relaxed uh, yeah, that's better right. that's right well uh, sorry yeah. from from a wedding in france i i but but i'll i'll, I'll i won't go i won't go on family values go on i think yeah what's so, so the reason Republicans will stop proxy voting if they take the majority is, in part, of course, this is sort of a, a humorous list, but, but uh, in part because it's good for the members to see each other face to face, to work together in committee. Um, I think, I think, you know, the the committee process is really the the heart of of the legislative process and regular order, um, and and it just does not work as well with members zooming in. Um, and and frankly, I don't think big hearings work as well. This is something that has worked, I, I think, against the Democrat majority. I don't think big hearings work as well um, when the marquee witness is zooming in. It, it's it, there's there's more theater, there's more drama when the witness is under the bright lights in the committee room. It's a packed room. The press is there. Every member is there. Staff are there. You just don't have the same drama, I think, um, and it's not as compelling um, when everyone's zooming in. I mean, you've all sat on a lot of zooms. Um, those meetings can be a drag. I think this is better, um, and so House Republicans will get rid of proxy voting if they take the majority um, for those and many other reasons. Look, I, I prefer to be in a kayak in a wedding in France right now, zooming in. But <laughs> <laughs> look, I mean, yeah, but it's it's. I think it's a d- differing opi- opinions, but again, it's, it's about guaranteeing that you know every member is on record. I think that's really critical. Yep. So, you know, at the beginning, when each of you were giving kind of an opening, kind of the political, are there races that will create personalities? And I say this starting maybe with with the House side. Um, and, Will, I'm going to pick on you. You're, you're the new member to the Brownstein team, so you... I'm you being yes, yeah. uh, this is how it works. Uh, but, no, um, I'm thinking about are there certain personalities that will create challenges... Uh, you like how I'm saying this uh, in the Republican caucus that you got to manage, right? Democrats have it too, right? Democrats, Republicans will always have different groups within that you have to manage through a process. Do you think that uh, McCarthy has the ability to kind of corral those people? Uh, of course, you'll say yes to that. But the, 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 the real question is, what will they do, that, those groups? Will they test them? Yeah, I think, look, um, I'll say this to start. I, I, I think the political spectrum is a circle, not a line. And I think there are points at, at the margins uh, for Democrats and Republicans where there's actually unity. Now, in spite of the progressives withdrawing their uh, letter regarding Ukraine, uh, I think there's some agreement um, on, on the far right and the far left on, on foreign policy. And that'll be something that uh, I think... I think both parties grapple with. Um, there will be agreement 
at the middle, too. If you look at the Problem Solvers Caucus, 50-50, Republican and Democrat. Um, so I think it's going to be a really interesting dynamic in the next Congress um, as, as new coalitions are formed. Um, obviously, uh, you know, the House Republicans have the Freedom Caucus. We have the Republican Study Committee. We have the Governance Group. Um, Democrats have their own caucuses as well, and, and those are power centers uh, within the Republican conference, certainly. Um, they'll assert themselves in, in ways that are new and unique in the majority, different from, from the minority. Um, but I think we'll see some teaming up, too, uh, maybe between the Freedom Caucus and the progressives on, on, on foreign affairs, um, and certainly at the, among the problem solvers on, on a number of issues. Um, to the question of whether uh, Kevin McCarthy can corral them. I'll say this. Uh, he, he is the best person for that job. Uh, I think he is, uh, if you look back the last couple of years, he has navigated all those personalities um, and, and, and really unified House Republicans. Uh, they, they rolled out an agenda a couple of weeks ago. Um, there was no dissent. House Republicans were singing from the same sheet. I think it's reflective of the sort of regular order process by which that agenda was put together. Every member had a voice. Every member had input. Uh, the committees worked together across jurisdictional lines, and they worked out their differences. Um, and, and they came up with a, with a high-level agenda that has a lot of detail, actually, as well. So the agenda itself, about 500 words. Um, but there are uh, dozens of one-pagers that sort of back that policy up on the leader's website, so I encourage you to go check it out. Um, and, and, you know, some of them are a little wordy, so, so uh, settle in. You know, the one-pager on supply <laughs> chain is six pages long. Um, so, uh, but but uh, that gives you a sense of where House Republicans are headed. But going back to your original question, I, I think it's because Kevin McCarthy is uh, ably leading them. Will is such an optimistic person, uh, but we appreciate that. I'm going to ask one more question while I'm doing this. Folks, think about if you have a question, and I think, Brian, do we have someone that has a microphone? There we go. So we'll try to take your questions, and if you have someone you want to direct it to, please say so. If not, I'll try to manage it. Um, let's imagine, however it falls out, uh, who's ever in charge, we come to January, new Congress. What's the agenda? What's going to happen next year that folks in this audience and others might be thinking, okay, this is important or not important? What's the, other than the standard, which I call you know appropriations, debt ceiling, all the kind of standard plays? Is there something out there that's happening or will be happening that people should be thinking about right now? And I'll start with Brian here and kind of see who else wants to jump in. Well, I'll. Um just point out that for Leader McConnell, again, um, if you take prior Congresses where he's been in a position either as um, Republican leader with a Congress in control of Republicans or divided Congress, uh, his view is that he doesn't mind making a point every once in a while by putting things on the floor he knows aren't going to be signed into law. Um, there's some value in that, um, but primarily he's interested in identifying legislation that is um, between the 40-yard lines and something that he thinks that his conference will support, um, that Democrats will, um, that the president will sign into law. And then I think, you know, obviously the nomination process is something that will be, look significantly different if Republicans control the Senate, it'll force um, the administration to put forward uh, a different kind of nominee for many of the agencies and, um, uh, sub-cabinet-level positions 
so I think, you know, I'll let Will fill in some of the details as we did not put out a 10-point plan um, <laughs> on the Senate side. But in terms of the principles, I think those are generally the principles that will guide the leader. And then just briefly on this question of managing a diverse caucus, uh, the Senate has, has the same challenge. It's not quite as stark, I would say, as it is in the House. Um, but, you know, the Senate Republicans are a diverse uh, ideological group. It's a ideologically diverse country. Um, our conference reflects that, and I think ultimately um, the leader is generally focused on the next vote, not the vote, uh, not just the vote in front of them. So he treats his conference, every member of his conference, in that manner. Um, and I think that you know his uh, reelection as leader uh, about eight times now um, without opposition is a good reflection of the confidence that his conference has, both, you know, everybody from Susan Collins to Ted Cruz, that he's able to corral them in those votes that really matter. And then on the institutional stuff, as well as the nomination side, I think similarly, there's a, there's a high level of trust and confidence by his conference and his ability to carry out that job as, as well as anybody. Anyone else? What, what are the issues for next year? What are the topics that people are going to be thinking about? Maybe. I think one of the issues for, for Democrats, and they want to focus on clearly, is China. And I think there is some alignment here with, uh, with uh, their Republican colleagues as well. They have a different, differing view of how to approach that. But I think that's going to be a major uh, discussion point for, for Democrats in the, in the, in the House. Um, additionally, they're going to be looking at some of the um, bills that were, some of the, sorry, items that were not included in the Build Back Better, word from the past here, uh, including uh, child care, for example, um, elder care as well, and see if there's any bipartisan opportunities going forward. Member Cedar, Will, anything you want to add? I mean, farm bills, I potentially. Farm bill, yeah, yeah, farm bill. I think there could be some, like, mild tax bills um, that happen as well. You just got Russ very excited here. Russ is very excited. Not spicy. Yeah, not spicy. But farm bill tax, anything else on the shopping list? And I think on on the Democratic side, um, when uh, they retain the Senate, there will be a number of, um, I think nominations will continue to be incredibly important for um, Senator, for Majority Leader Schumer. Um, obviously, judges continue to be a high priority as well. And our good colleague, Tim Keating, has reminded us that FAA will also <laughs> be on the agenda as well. FAA reauthorization. Um, let me open and up. I, oh, oh, go ahead, and I was going to say, and I do think that in the Senate, you know, in a, in a split chamber, you know, I think what we've come to know as these bipartisan gangs will become extremely important again. And, you know, I think the role of those members that we've typically seen, um, you know, uh, from Romney to, you know, Manchin, Tester, Warner, um, I think we'll have a lot of say in the things that we're able to accomplish um, in a split, in a split Congress. Very good. Questions from the audience who dares to ask. There you go. Perfect. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks to the Brownstein team for uh, putting this timely conversation together. Uh, so let's fast forward to election night. What are the one or two races you guys are watching to signal early as to the strength of outcomes for Democrats or Republicans? Who wants to start off on that uh, one? I'm, happy to, I'm <laughs> happy to take that. I, I would, He's been anxious from the beginning. He's been wanting. <laughs> I want to talk races. I want to talk horse race. I, I, yeah, I think, I think look to Virginia. Virginia counts their votes 
pretty quickly. Um, and and so you know, Luria, Spanberger, Wexton, I think um, in in that order um, will give you a sense of of how big or small the uh, the Republican wave is. Um, I think Luria is first, uh, and then Spanberger, tougher out. Wexton, extremely tough out for, for Republicans. But if, if they take all three, look for a big, big night for Republicans. But but sort of, I, w- I would actually look to Virginia and those three races to give you an indicator of how the night's going to go for us. And uh, another is Indiana, uh, Jennifer Ruth Green versus Mervan. Um, that's a that is a true swing seat. Interestingly, a seat where Republicans haven't played historically, um, and so that's an interesting one to watch. Um, so I'd give you those four. Fully agree with with uh, Will because those were the uh, Virginia. I, I want to. I just wanted to. I think Wexton, speaking to a Republican colleague here, I think it'll be very tough to get Wexton out. But Luria and Spanberger, see how you know how quickly um, they declare those races. Right. On the Senate side, I think our majority runs through Pennsylvania pretty clearly at this point. Georgia, it's uh, there's a good chance that we won't know the outcome, but Pennsylvania, I think most eyes are going to be focused there. Other questions? Russ Sullivan, nationalization of the elections. Many pundits say we've, we're already there, that it's the national media and people across America sort of adopt it, and it's going to be a referendum on Biden. Do you agree? Is it is it more than previous times or some of the things like ranked choice voting and, and other things that are happening across the countries might make it that we see uh, different pockets throughout the country? Who wants to touch that one? I mean, I'm happy to talk about a couple edge cases. Obviously, ranked choice voting in Maine and Alaska uh, led led to interesting outcomes uh, both both four years ago in Maine. Uh, when Jared Golden uh, beat Bruce Poliquin uh, on on the second round, uh, Poliquin was ahead on the first, uh, lost on the second. Uh, obviously, Alaska is a fascinating case um, with ranked choice voting, as voters are sort of trying to understand how the process works. Um, so I think I think I think that's kind of a, an anomaly. Um, but I think also you know we we should look to the states for anomalies. We should look to the states where. Uh, Abortion is on the ballot. Um, I think you know Michigan is an interesting state to watch um, to see what that means for turnout and 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 what that means for the composition of the electorate. Um, so so I, I would answer the question this way: there are some anomalies uh, that are explainable, um, and and the rest are going to be sort of uh, clustering. I would say uh, of the races, unless there's some structural reason uh, that the races is, is an anomaly. Others? Any other comment? Let me, let me ask. I'm going to ask a question. Well, I, I know there's a question over here, but um, the Utah race, the Senate race, any thoughts from Carmen Cedillo or, or Brian on that? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I'm somehow on someone's mailing list, so I get to see all that. I'm also on Trump's fundraising list, which I don't understand that, mm-hmm. uh, and a couple others. So any, the, what's the dynamic happening there? People say it's a close race. I'm looking at Brian because I want him to <laughs> touch this one. It, Do you you know, think it, it does, is? It does appear to be closer than um, we would have wanted. I think the last couple of weeks is a good opportunity for the league campaign to to sort of make it clear to voters that Evan McMullen is, is not going to be caucusing with Republicans. Um, he said it, but most of the voters don't seem to have heard that. Um, I think that Mike Lee will win, uh, but 
you know, this is one of those races, there's always one or two every cycle that end up being more challenging than you would expect in states that you don't have to fight in. And, you know, it sort of raises another point, which, um, you know, both sides have their kind of complaints about how the cycle turned out. But uh, in our case, I think having tens of millions of dollars tied up in states where we didn't expect to have to spend that kind of money is something that, you know, will we'll probably make it harder for us to play in places where we might have opportunities. So that generally happens every cycle. Um, you never know how that, that chessboard is going to play out uh, exactly. But I think that latter dynamic is also a, a kind of a, an exasperating <laughs> reality, but one that um, we've, we've seen in previous cycles and one that I think won't, won't prevent us from, you know, having a, having a good night given where the trend lines are. Go ahead, Karmacita. Yeah, I think that Mike Lee's not polling well, and I think, obviously, Evan McMullen's not running as a Democrat, um, you know, so I think he's not kind of campaigning on, you know, he doesn't have to defend, you know, the Democrats' agenda, but I do think that it's interesting that, you know, that Lee and Trump recently, you know, pressured um, Romney to come out and support Lee, and he didn't do it. And so, I, I, you know, I think it continues to be an outlier um, race that could, I think, get us to 5149 in the, in the Senate. Yeah, Very speaking good. of anomalies, here you have a, a candidate not running as a Democrat endorsed by the Democratic Party in the state, so... I knew there'd be a little moment there. Um, in the category of anomalies. <laughs> exactly. Let me go over here. It's a broad caucus. Uh, exactly. We have a diverse caucus. <laughs> go ahead. So the agenda of Congress after the election is going to be very crowded. Do you think there's a chance for electoral college reform? I do. I think that... Um, you have a strong uh, bill in the Senate that got a 14 to 1 vote coming out of the Rules Committee. That's a really stout vote. You have um, currently a good number of bipartisan co sponsors. Um, you have a president and um, uh, leaders in Congress on both sides who've said they support this. Uh, I think it's a, a, a reasonable and probably long overdue uh, amendment to a law that everybody agrees is flawed. Good. I think you got you see agreement along the tables here. Well, I think it's just a matter of timing, right? Uh, the House has its own version, uh, and they believe it's better. However, if it comes down to you know um, timing, I, I believe at the end of the day, uh, they will. Very good. Other questions, Alan? Then, then there's one way in the back, midway through. Go ahead. So we have a lot of clients in the room. And uh, I'd like to ask the panel a logistical question and a policy question that I think they'll be interested in. Number one, if Republicans take over, can we all just walk back into the buildings without being escorted? (laughs) Number two, if there's divided government, what opportunities might there be for business, particularly in the House, where there's going to be a lot of oversight hearings? Who wants to start on that? Yeah, I'll take the logistical question. Uh, Yes. Uh, I think I think you'll see a, a, a return to pre-COVID normalcy uh, in terms of um, the openness of the capital itself and 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 the the broader uh, complex uh, and and I, I do think though uh, that security is a concern for both sides um, and 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 I think you can expect to see if, if Republicans are in the majority um, 
an emphasis on, on making sure members are safe uh, as they do their jobs and staff are safe as they do their jobs. Um, so, you know, with that caveat, yeah, I think, I think uh, you'll, see, you'll see a return to, to sort of the pre-COVID norms. Yeah, Al, I would just add that I think Capitol Police has a little bit of a staffing challenge which is another factor here that people are taking into consideration. There, there's been a, a significant drop-off, um, and uh, that's another issue that they're going to have to deal with. I think also culturally people have gotten a little accustomed to the Zoom meeting, and so there's probably going to be a little bit of a tail there on that. But, um, yeah, I think on the Senate side as well um, there will be an effort to, to open things up. Yeah, oh, and, and just Brian's exactly right about the Capitol Police, and I'll, I'll give you a bit of good news. Their recruiting is going extremely well, and their training classes are at capacity. So, so there is there is a wave of new officers uh, who will be joining the Capitol Police, hopefully alleviating some of those bottlenecks with you know entrances and exits, that kind of thing. To your second part, Al, is is in a divided government is there opportunities? And you know there was a quick comment, and I'll just see if people have additional comments on this. I mean. We haven't said too much. Carmesita did a little bit on tax extend or tax things. I'll just leave that. Is there opportunity sitting out there on that or or energy or other issues of that magnitude that might be an opportunity? I would look at um, bills that committees have passed out with strong bipartisan votes. I know that leadership on the Senate Republican side is always interested in seeing what bills from the various committees the chairs and rankers can send them that show strong bipartisan support. I think that's the best place to start. Um, we can go through each committee and identify a, a small handful of bills that might fit that description. Um, I just mentioned the Electoral Count Act, but there are other bills out of help and um, other committees that, that, that have that profile. Uh, it, it's a perfect opportunity when you have divided government to move bills like that. They clearly got the support of a bipartisan um, large bipartisan members um, uh, in in at least one half of the Congress, and um, so I, I know on the Senate side, those are the ones that they'd be interested in, in seeing if the president might be willing to sign. Nadine, did you? No, I think it's again. I mean, regardless, um, if you have divided government or, or, or Democrats remain in control. You still need 60 votes in the Senate to get anything done. So I think I'd, I'd see opportunities in the healthcare space. Also see, um, well, you know, dangers for the uh, um, technology companies um, into next Congress as well. So um, I think that's that's um, both an opportunity and danger. Great. There's a question kind of midway. There we go. I'll just be, I'll just be loud. Kevin Jones with the orthopedic surgeons. Uh, maybe question for Will. If Republicans take the House, who becomes Ways chair and who becomes the whip? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. Let me look into my crystal ball here. Uh, I love this question. Yeah, we're on the record. Hello to the reporter. Uh, <laughs> Look, we're we're really fortunate to have uh, uh, a race in both cases uh, among House Republicans. Obviously, the whip race only materializes if if Republicans take the majority. But the the Ways and Means race has three fantastic candidates. I think you have Vern Buchanan, who represents sort of a continuation of what Brady's been doing uh, at the committee. Uh, he's the most senior. Um, you have Jason Smith, who's uh, more political. That's what he brings to the table, and you can see the work he's done at the Budget Committee. Uh, and Adrian Smith, who is more of the policy wonk. Um, so I think the Republican uh, Steering Committee has three great choices um, and, and with distinct strengths. 
uh, and and I'm happy to happy to talk with you more offline about that. <laughs> um, and and uh, and look in, in the whip race too. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of go through. You've got Drew Ferguson, um, who among the three candidates has done the job uh, as, as chief deputy whip, so he's got experience under his belt. Um, you look at Emmer, um, he had a good cycle in 2020. Uh, Republicans are optimistic about a good cycle in 22. Um, that's the strength that he brings to the table. Banks is a messaging dynamo. He runs the Republican Study Committee, the biggest caucus uh, of Republicans in the House, um, and that's his base of support. So, um, you know, for all six candidates across the two races, each has a distinct base of support and 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 case that they can make um so it's 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 fun to watch we view it as a good thing uh and 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 uh and i know leader mccarthy views it as a good thing uh, that there's competition one thing i'll say about the whip race it's the only leadership race where what you have to do to win is what you have to do to be good at the job that's what the whip candidates are doing right now is trying to line people up to vote for them uh, and to the one who wins, the strongest candidate will win, um, will then go try to corral votes uh, among House Republicans. So, uh, you know, uh, good luck to them in the race and good luck to them post-race. And he'll talk to you afterwards. <laughs> yeah, even though Will is from the House, so that was a great filibuster. <laughs> <laughs> He's learning from the I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm um, learning. We'll take one more question and then uh, I'll close it off with a final. Any addition? Yes. Sure. Awesome. Just kind of had a question maybe for some of the Democrats on the panel to talk about messaging specifically around like economic issues. Uh, I'm with the Credit Union National Association on their political team, and we recently put out uh, our big ad blitz. And some of the ads that we put out specifically for the Democrats were hitting home on the economic issues that they've been focusing on this Congress and whatnot. And as we've seen, just because I'm a political junkie and tracking all the ads and seeing where folks are getting hammered and whatnot, it's it seems like the Democrats have just kind of just shifted mostly just all Dobbs after post-Dobbs, and then, you know, the economic messages are getting, you know, kind of mixed and whatnot. What advice would you have for a Democratic candidate to kind of revamp their messaging on issues that they're working on to lower costs and et cetera, et cetera, on that? Nadine, Kermesina? Look, I mean, I would not pretend to give a Democratic candidate running in a congressional district um, advice in this environment, frankly, because Dobbs certainly cuts across the board. And I think a lot of Democrats across the country are using it um, for, for good reason and for obvious reasons. Secondly, uh, if, if you just put the partisan um, views aside, if you look at this particular Congress, whether it's the bipartisan infrastructure bill, whether it's gun reform, uh, whether it's the um, IRA, whether it's the first um, reconciliation bill, there's plethora of um, opportunities for members uh, in their districts or candidates in their districts to pick and choose what they feel works there. So now we're seeing a lot of messaging around uh, prescription drugs, a lot of messaging around help to seniors when it comes to capping costs. Um, if um, so it just depends on district by district. But I think the overall message, yes, I agree, it's Dobbs has, has played a, a major role in that. But I think members decide what works in their districts. And, and that's usually the same recommendation uh, I would give uh, to a member when I was um, back on the Hill or now. Carmesita, any thoughts on that? No, I mean, I, I agree. I was going to say the same thing, that I think it's 
you know, all politics is local. And so I think the messaging is going to be different depending on where you are in the country. Um, I do think that we live in a world where it's kind of like, what have you done? You know, it's, it's, it's not as much living in the past. It's looking forward. And I think using the accomplishments that Nadim outlined as more of a, um, you know, like a case study for what else we could do for the electorate is what should be done um, versus kind of just like resting on our laurels of what we did in the past. And so, um, you know, I agree. Um, I, I just I do think that politics is local and it just depends on what is happening in that individual member's district as well. Before I ask the last question to the team here, I'm going to give a little, as a moderate, I'll answer as a Democrat, as a former, suffered through campaigns multiple times. Um, I think the, the, the choice issue is an incredible base that had populated the Democrats in a way that they haven't been in a long time, which has been huge value to them. And they are holding that. They moved into suburban uh, women much higher this cycle because of that. But now, you know, as I said at the beginning, you know, you're two weeks out from an election that is 14 lifetimes in politics. I mean, tomorrow we could see a candidate that has maybe breathed a little bit and now they're gone because of something they say. But the economic message is one that they, you know, I think Democrats should continue to talk about in the local way because it's different. You know, in Alaska, it's very different than what's going on here in D.C. on what the economics are. But I think from the Democrats, you know, they have a great base. They've solidified their core uh, with the choice issue, which has tipped the Republicans a little bit off. And then uh, the Republicans have honed in their message on economy and crime. And Democrats should take a piece of that away from them in the last 14 lifetimes that are between now and the election. That's that's my two bits. Uh, represents more than just abortion That's right. for a number of voters. It represents what else could, you know, what, what else is like anti, you know, marriage or I, I just think it, it's, it's actually bigger than abortion itself. It's like what abortion represents at, like, what is it a harbinger for? So, um, so I think it's important in that respect. So my last question to the group, and again, we want to thank you for being here. The one that only in Alaska we care deeply about this, and that is earmarks. Uh, do you think in a House controlled by Republicans, a Senate, because I'll take Carmen Cetus, uh, controlled by Democrats, um, does that make you feel better? Yeah. <laughs> um, what happens to earmarks in the next cycle? Do they stay? Do they go away? What happens? We'll start with the House side. Sure. Well, Democrats in the majority of this Congress obviously brought earmarks back. A um, little bit of a little bit of a dry run. See how it goes. Uh, by all accounts, it's gone pretty well. Um, House Republicans responded to Democrats bringing earmarks back by having a family conversation and voting um, to allow their members as a as a group to participate in the earmark process. Um, so far, so good. And I, I think there are a lot of good arguments among Republicans. Four earmarks, uh, you know, one is just sort of a basic Article One power of the purse argument. Um, but another that works pretty well uh, among Republicans right now with the Democrat in the White House is that if you don't make this decision, 
a Biden appointee will, and that that actually that actually carries some weight uh, with with House Republicans, and it and I'm sure it it, it did in reverse uh, when when Donald Trump was in the White House. So um, so yeah, I would look to those two factors. But House Republicans will have a, a family conversation uh, in December about what to do going forward. So uh, keep an eye on that. Anyone else want to comment on that? If I mean, you, I think of the Senate earmarks. Um, you know, on the Democratic side, I think there's a desire for them to stay. Um, and I think there's a feeling that they're being, you know, that 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 the process is more transparent and um, and in being handled in a very appropriate way. And so there is, um, you know, a good case to be made that they should still be there going forward. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the, the same ideological split exists in the Republican conference. The arguments that Will made are familiar uh, to me. Republicans have settled into this um, mode of operating under which there's a, a discrete number of congressionally directed projects available. Some members may choose to take some of those allotted projects. Some don't. Um, there's some surprises in which members have decided to use these earmarks and, and which ones haven't. But I feel like that's kind of become the center of gravity in the conference and a kind of uh, mode that they've seemed comfortable with as a conference at the moment. There we go. So let me say I am surprised and happy for one thing, uh, and I can say this because I'm the rogue here. Uh, no one mentioned what was happening around Trump on any level. So we stayed on policy, and I appreciate that. From Brownstein's perspective, we want to thank all of you for being here today, being part of this as an uh, opportunity to hear from insiders that spend a lot of time on uh, the Hill and talking to the folks, and we thank you for being here this morning. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.